data can have bugs mm. um, and it operates orthogonally to software bugs. Of course they're related, data is often generated and manipulated by software, but all of your systems can be green. Right? Your snowflake is up, your right, airflow is running. It's running, you're just missing half of the data and it is 72 hours late. Welcome to the Data Masters Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Dayton. Today's episode is a bit unique because it's the first time we're recording an episode in person. So we'll see how this goes. I'm excited to welcome today's guest, Kevin Hu. Kevin is the co-founder and CEO of Metaplane, a data observability platform that helps data teams be the first to know of data quality issues. Companies like Imperfect Foods, Drift, and Reforge use Metaplane to increase trust and save engineering time. Kevin launched Metaplane out of Y Combinator, which we'll talk about in this episode. Before Metaplane, Kevin researched the intersection of machine learning and data science at MIT, where he earned his PhD. Welcome to the office and welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks for having me here. No, just chatting uh, casually over burgers and fries is something that you definitely can't do over Zoom. So yeah. I appreciate that you welcoming me. The Zoom version of burgers uh, leave much to the imagination. <laughs> so maybe we could start a little bit um, with your background. So uh, an MIT PhD, um, maybe share a little bit about uh, how you ended up at MIT, what you were uh, studying and researching there. I started at MIT as an undergrad. I studied physics at the time, uh, course eight, as they would say. And I was such a nerd about thermodynamics and quantum physics was what I was focused on. And what got me interested in data uh, actually starts from the gauntlet course at MIT physics, where every student has to take an experimental lab course called JLab. And this lab course was notorious. They would say, you know, you have 40 hours of, you know, coursework in the week, I allocate 30 of it to JLab. Uh, so it was brutal, it was known as the feeder course. And surprisingly, I thought it was very easy. Uh, but I don't think I'm a particularly good, you know, physics student. What it came down to was uh, two things. One is that I had a great partner. Uh, an international physics Olympiad gold medalist, which I'm sure you know <laughs> carried a lot of the team there. But the second part, which was very interesting, was the way the course was structured is every two weeks, you have to replicate a Nobel Prize winning experiment. And then the second week, you have to write the paper and then make the presentation. And when I stepped back and looked at the class, I realized, wow, everyone does the experiment in the same amount of time. What takes the most time is collecting and analyzing and interpreting the data and writing it down in a way that can be communicated uh, to the teachers. That's what people were working on late into the night. Um, and also when I realized, wow, the way that we work with data is such a bottleneck, right? Um, in parallel, my sister, who is a biologist, who was getting her PhD at Stanford at the time was messaging me, hey, you know, I have all this experimental data from five years of grad school. Can you help me analyze it? I was like, after five years of hard science, the problem is that you can't analyze your data in R. This is a little bit ridiculous. 
uh, which is how I got into the PhD, where I had a great advisor, Cesar Hidalgo, and did research for six years on how we can uh, augment and automate the data science process. Interesting. So, like, and, and I think it's a very common uh, experience is that you have a, a sort of personal experience with, in this case, uh, getting meaning, finding meaning uh, in, in data, and a particularly difficult problem in academia, because in most cases in academia, uh, you don't know if there's any meaning in the data. Like, at least in business, we can say, you know, what are sales, right? We can we sort of know that they are something. Uh, in many cases, you may run an experiment and there may actually not be anything there, right? That is a great point. And I think the challenge of data science is not necessarily making the data have meaning when it doesn't have meaning, but to get to the answer as quickly as possible with as much confidence as possible. Really trying to increase like the iteration speed between you know someone with a domain knowledge having a question and then them receiving the answer. Whether that's you know five minutes for someone who has you know well-structured data and is fam like familiar with how to work with it, or five days or five months, I think makes a huge difference. Right. So if you can increase the cycle time, the pace with which you're uh, looking at managing and understanding the data, that actually has in academia has significant benefits, and obviously that that translates pretty directly into the into the business world. Yeah, hundred percent. So the other thing, um, I used to have this theory that said, uh, if you want to understand what's happening in the world, uh, go look at what undergraduates are doing. So, you know, I, my first experience with a web browser happened, you know, because, uh, you know, we were introduced to it as undergrads. Uh, we, uh, we even uh, did things in undergraduate with, um, you know, sending emails and stuff like that, which were at the time relatively cutting edge. Um, so I'm... Curious from your perspective as someone who's uh, a bit closer to uh, what people are studying in academia, are there technologies and um, research topics within academia that, uh, that people should be aware of and aren't because, of course, they're not close enough to academia? Within our particular field of working <clears throat> with data, I was lucky to be on the very early side of what I think is a super exciting trend which is trying to apply machine learning to data science processes. Uh, one of my thesis readers, uh, Tim Kroska, uh, for example, has amazing work on trying to train deep neural networks to create indices for databases. Right? Indices are just you know, statistical structures that roughly map some input to a location. And he was saying, you know, given a bunch of queries, can you learn that function? And I would say on many components of quote-unquote data science from collecting data to munging it and you know reconciling everything to visualizing uh, there are some approaches uh, where you can apply machine learning against like a large data set to augment that process i'm particularly excited about the work that's going on in automated visualization mm -hmm. uh, but i'm a little bit biased because that's what i was doing research on but i think that's a Really interesting point, which is that um, the if you before machine learning, that there was always a very structured algorithm to um, well, one might say a rules-based model for performing any sort of work with data, or for that matter, work in the real world. So I, I always think about this analogy to uh, the self-driving car, which is the, the, the mechanism of 
making an automobile work is to literally provide direct input to the direction and speed of the car through the accelerator and the steering wheel. Uh, and the great insight of uh, you know, uh, Tesla, for example, is that no, actually, we, we can just get a sort of general idea of where you'd like to go from the, from the driver and let the car drive itself. Uh, so it feels like maybe this trend of machine learning is actually being applied much more generally across all kinds of domains. Definitely. And I think self-driving cars are a great example of like a human pain. I don't want to have to do that commute every single day to like a well-defined problem. And it's a very, very challenging problem for sure. In the case of driving, you can have that many mistakes. Oftentimes <laughs> right. in the data science world, you can have a couple of false positives. It's not the end of the world, but the analogy is definitely there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Luckily, the the domain of data technologies is both probably easier uh, by nature. It's a it's a data driven problem, whereas you know driving is a very real world problem. Uh, but but also uh, where the the risk of failure is uh, uh, maybe a little easier. That's for sure. Um, and I think of some work, really exciting work happening on semantic type detection. Uh, oftentimes. No, all of these data technologies are based on the assumption that you know what the data represents. Mm -hmm. And currently, in a database, if you put in you know, a column of latitudes, for example, it will be a float or a decimal, uh, which kind of makes sense because that's how the data is being represented. However, the moment you know that it's a latitude or a longitude, uh, the possibilities are much wider right, for how you can work with this data, because now you know that it's a location. Um, and so that's another field I'm just very excited to see where, again, like the cost of being wrong is not so high. Right. right. And the benefit to being right is, as you point out, tremendous. So now that you right. know what you're dealing with from a data perspective and sort of latitude and longitude make a lot of sense, but even things like, you know, uh, sales, right, which, which have a very specific uh, range and domain that they're going to, they should be represented possibly in a currency and things like that. So I'm shifting gears slightly. Um, so you're at MIT. Uh, you do a PhD. Uh, I happen to know that what you're supposed to do when you do a PhD is become an academic and become a teacher. Uh, you are not. Uh, you started a company, Metaplane. So maybe before we dig into what Metaplane is and how you started it, maybe start with a more basic question, which is why start a company and why not go be an academic? Well, I kind of accidentally stumbled into the PhD. I never intended to do it. I just knew that in my 20s, I wanted to have the best boss that I could. And my undergrad advisor at the time, Cesar Hidalgo, was such an amazing mentor to me. Uh, for example, he coached me through finding the first research projects. He made connections with people like you know, Steven Pinker that I had no right talking with. And he eventually you know, gave me a book that read this book. The next step for you to progress is to learn how to tell a story like Steven Pinker can. It was the blank slate. And this is an, you know, my undergrad advisor. I was thinking, like, who am I to deserve this time? And I was very grateful for that. I just realized I want to keep learning from him, which is why I stayed on for the master's and eventually uh, for the PhD. What led me to industry was the recognition that I wanted to 
impact as many people as possible. And uh, right now, when it comes to technology, right, there's two value chains that are so horizontally ap applicable. One is software, right? Software is in the world, and the other one is data. Mm -hmm. uh, which kinds of what company out there isn't trying to collect data, you know, improve their business processes, improve decision making? And I feel like sometimes where you have the most impact oscillates. Mm -hmm. right? In academia, uh, some of the most brilliant database research, right? Like most impactful database work has come out of academia, but recently, right, it's been an industry right, where new data warehouses have been developed that are going to touch a billion people. And I think now we're in a time where the pendulum is more on the industry side, where you see people not choosing to not go into academic paths and academics themselves starting companies or leaving academia entirely uh, because the technology is kind of ready and the industry is ready. Uh, to build these tools. Yeah, so it's an interesting point. And the, I think historically we've seen that what we might call fundamental research occurs in academic settings. Right. Uh, and your point, I think, is that no, I mean, obviously that still still occurs, but the, potentially we should think about industry as a source for fundamental research. I think that's totally right. Um, well, industry is definitely becoming a source, uh, especially on like machine learning research. Mm -hmm. right? You see uh, large software companies building up enormous, well-funded, prestigious research teams. Yeah, in yeah, interesting. So when you go to start Metaplane, you also do something maybe not unexpected, but something very specific, which is Y Combinator. So maybe you share a little bit about what that is or how that path works, because not everyone may know that. And then maybe share a little bit about uh, why you chose that path. Y Combinator is a startup incubator where they give you some money for equity in your company. You go there for three months and they try to accelerate your company as much as they can. Uh, some Y Combinator companies include Stripe, Dropbox, DoorDash, Coinbase, Airbnb. The list goes on. They've had a huge amount of IPOs just in the past year. Uh, we've tried to get into Y Combinator many times. We actually applied four times, and it was on the fourth time that we finally got in. And that means that three times we had to fly from Boston to San Francisco just for a 10-minute interview to be grilled. And then we just fly back and we get an email saying, this is why you didn't get in. But uh, eventually we got into the W20 batch and it probably was the highest leverage three months in our startup's life. YC really, I think back to that time and I really distill what they did into like three buckets. Mm -hmm. One is they had guest speakers every week. Uh, our first guest speaker was, they were the founders of Airbnb. And then the next week after that was the founder of Segment. Uh, they recently sold to Twilio. Yep. And that kind of gave you different success stories and made you realize that there isn't one formula for startup success, right? Airbnb, the founders had so much conviction, enough conviction for them to sell cereal to survive. The Stripe founders were more, like they pivoted multiple times until they found something with product market fit. And you see, you know, startups fall on both sides of that spectrum, right? Airbnb, Coinbase, high conviction, segment, amplitude, uh, retool, kind of went all over the place until they found something. Mm -hmm. um, 
<clears throat> so that was one big takeaway is that there's no one right way to build a company. But the second takeaway, which I'm sure is no news to you or your listeners, is that there are common failure patterns, right? Mm-hmm. There are ways to not build a company. And I would say that the famous YC advice of talking to your users versus you know listening to investors or competitors too much, shipping quickly, reducing your burn rate are all pieces of advice that counter common failure patterns. Increasing your burn too much, talking to the wrong people, shipping too slowly, when as a startup, your only competitive advantage is time, basically. Mm -hmm. You can outship your competitors. I think those two things were huge boons to us, and we still think about them all the time. So is it fair to say that uh, Y Combinator sort of provided, obviously, platform to launch the startup, but also sort of founding principles that help guide the experience. That's fair to say. And a great community. Uh, we keep in touch with a lot of people from our batch, many of which are also you know, startups in the data space, like Airbyte and HighTouch are two startups in the modern data ecosystem. Uh, so I think the principles and the community are well worth the equity. And then in, in if there was a listener uh, listening who was considering doing a startup, uh, given where you know, your process through Y Combinator to uh, launching Metaplane, are there advice you would give them? Not, not everyone's going to be able to get into Y Combinator, so that's sort of one challenge, but uh, anything you took away through the process that you would leave as advice for them? I would say that YC isn't a goal in itself. I know many people try to get into YC to have that on their resume, but you get in when you build a good company. Mm-hmm. And the end state isn't that you got into YC, it's that you you continue building a good company. When the fundamentals are solid, everything else will fall into place. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of that too. I think one challenge of building a startup is you get pulled in a billion different directions, and yet you can only make one or maybe two moves. It's making that decision that's tough. Yeah, and that point about YC is also really interesting because the same is true in a later stage. So used to, you know, people think of an IPO as a goal. And one thing to remember, of course, is that no, it's just a step on a journey. If you read through some of the YC recent blog posts, they'll take you like DoorDash from YC to IPO. And it's like you're saying, it's one continuous journey, right? From two people in a cramped Mountain View apartment to a thousand person IPO company and and beyond, right? As we know, um, companies grow significantly past the IPO point, like you said. And hopefully so, right? That that would be certainly the goal. And especially if you're trying to build uh, a great company uh, as opposed to just, uh, you know, trying to do a startup. I like to say that the, the goal is not a startup. The goal is a great company. Right. Exactly. So um, maybe speaking of startups and great companies, let's talk a little bit about Metaplane and maybe start with just a quick overview of, uh, we talked about data observability and that the, the broad challenge. Maybe give listeners a little bit of an understanding of what the company does. Metaplane is a data observability tool. 
that plugs into your data stack, for example, warehouses like Snowflake, transformation tools like DPT, BI dashboards like Looker, and simply we let your data team be the first to know when something goes wrong and what the impact is. So why is this problem important? Let's go back a little bit, where in data teams today, frequently data teams are the last to find out about data issues, right? They're, go to their Slack and the head of marketing says, why does this Looker dashboard look weird? Uh, why is this you know, table not updating? Uh, and we feel like this is kind of like a systemic problem where the amount of assets that you can create as a data team the you know, tables, dashboards quickly grows over time. You get hundreds or thousands of liquor dashboards and there's no way that you can audit all of that. So what we're seeing is companies are taking advantage of technologies like Snowflake and ELT tools to store and model more and more data. But there's a little bit of a ticking time bomb because there's it's only a matter of time until one of your stakeholders starts to lose trust in that data. And the purpose of Metaplane is to make sure that that doesn't happen. So at its most basic, uh, you're selling trust. We're, we're trying to sell trust, exactly. Um, because once you have the data in place and it is being used, the most important pillar is that the data is trusted. And and then the, the um... The opposite of trust uh, is when there's a systemic failure and, and you, the, the, the one who discovers the failure, uh, is the one consuming, in, in your example, the dashboard for consuming the data. Um, and it feels like the analogy here, which I think you make very explicit, uh, is the analogy to how software development is, is changing. So historically, when we build software, uh, the way we discovered a problem is when we shipped buggy software to the, to the customer and they came back and said, my God, this thing is junk or you know, it doesn't work. And, and then we worked backwards to figure out uh, how to fix that. Um, is that a fair analogy? I think it's a, it is the analogy um, where not only in observability, but in other parts of the data stack, for example, the new term of the analytics engineer, we're recognizing as a community that while there are appreciable differences from the software world, that there is a lot we can learn from the software engineering best practices that have developed over the past few decades. With observability in particular, like you said, used to shift you know, an endpoint, maybe put a heartbeat check on it, call the day. Nowadays, like imagine walking onto an engineering team and not installing Datadog or SignalFX. That's a little bit unprofessional, right? You will be laughed out of the room. Uh, and yet operating in the dark is unfortunately how many data teams are operating today. To no fault of their own, right? You have so much on your plate and the technology just isn't quite there or easy to adopt for you to have that sort of visibility. But hopefully, things will be changing in the coming years. So one of the reasons that we've seen such a revolution in the software development space uh, is that we have significantly different architecture in place, very specifically a cloud architecture. You know, we have uh, data sources uh, that live and breathe on, you know, in a cloud environment. 
uh, you have access to essentially infinite compute and storage at very reasonable costs. Um, and, and certainly that wasn't true, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, you know, I know um, for Metaplane, Snowflake is a, a big partner. Um, how do you see, or how do you see the infrastructure of data ops and data engineering changing that then enables a solution like Metaplane? Going back to what we were saying earlier about why now is a great time to start a data company to have impact on a billion people or more. Part of it is the centralization where some of our smallest customers, one person data teams are using Snowflake, DBT and Looker. Some of our largest customers, right, thousands of employees have the exact same data stack, Snowflake, DBT and Looker. This wouldn't have been possible uh, even just a few years ago uh, to have a small set of integrations with so much gravity in the data stack uh, that you can build integrations with and address a large market. Uh, and the ability to infinitely scale compute for observability in particular has eliminated the trade-off between data quality and data performance. Mm -hmm. In previous generations of database systems, you couldn't have hourly checks on your data because you have hourly people using your data. It's like, wait, why do I have this huge table scan bottlenecking my BI dashboard? Uh, now that's no longer an issue. Right, so you, you, you can essentially have infinite performance and infinite uh, compute at, at your ready to be able to do the work you need to do to observe the platform and not get in the way of actually using uh, the platform. Maybe you could share um, at a very practical level uh, some a customer example or, or how uh, Metaplane is being used, and in particular, how a business user would experience uh, the benefit of, of a system like this. Well, one, thank you, Papa Moore, for Moore's Law. Yes. That makes this possible. Uh, for us, we have customers across all sorts of verticals, from healthcare to B2B SaaS to fintech companies. Uh, and one common pattern that we see is that of late data, um, where data in Snowflake is not being refreshed. And a business user should know that the dashboard that they're looking at is you know, 12 hours late. Mm -hmm. This happens almost across the board with all of our customers. And with, without Metaplane, you know, the business user is, again, the first to know because they ask, why, why isn't this being updated? With Metaplane, we have anomaly detection systems based on the freshness of your data, accounting for seasonality and trends. And we alert you when you know, a longer than expected time has elapsed since your data has been updated. So practically, we send a Slack alert or a PagerDuty alert to our customers saying, this table has not been updated. This is what we expected. These are the downstream tables and dashboards that are impacted. And if the data is available, here is who you should let know about that. Got it. So the, you know, the, the general concept here is the data pipeline is something's broken in the data pipeline. And the results of that is a downstream uh, impact on the business. Their dashboards aren't up to date. They complain about that. Um, and the, again, 
bringing these two ideas together, software development and this data pipeline, this feels like uh, what we might in software development call a bug. Right? Exactly. There's a bug and, uh, and now the detection of the bug occurs when the software doesn't compile or we can't ship. Um, so do you have the same concept in data observability of a bug? Is that a fair analogy? Uh, you're exactly right. Data can have bugs mm. um, and it operates orthogonally to software bugs. Of course, they're related. Data is often generated and manipulated by software, but all of your systems can be green, right? Your Snowflake is up, your right, Airflow is running. It's running. You're just missing half of the data and it is 72 hours late. Um, so data can definitely have bugs and oftentimes it's silent, right? It kind of like sneaks its way past your systems until it gets in front of the eyeballs of someone who knows what it should look like. Mm. Again, the stakeholders. So th this idea of a silent bug is a really interesting one because maybe to put words in your mouth, the one version of the problem of data observability is there is no data. Well, that's clearly a problem. Right. But another, and maybe more uh, to your uh, more um, uh, more dangerous one, is the silent problem, which is there is data, it's just incorrect. And, and so with the math, there's well, there's less data than we expected, but it could also be that uh, the data is just weird, like you're getting all negative sales, like or you're getting you know all sales of only one product or something like that. Mm -hmm. We don't want it to be silent. That's the thing, mm -hmm. right? All negative sales, we want that to be very, very loud. Um, and that's part of what, what observability tools are trying to address. But I think it's also part of like a larger organizational issue where everyone is has some skin in the game when it comes to data quality. Yeah, uh, interesting. And uh, so, the the idea of sort of it's like you're almost like giving a voice uh, to the to the data, um, so that you you don't have to rely on the end user in this case the business professional to raise the alarm. One analogy that a friend Gordon Wong, former VP of BI at HubSpot, says it's like data is kind of like food service, mm. where you need to source the ingredients, come up with the recipes. You have your kitchen, cook it. You have the waiters, you know, serve the customer, and then the customer, you know, eats their food, leaves a review, they might come back. There's so many steps along the way where something could go wrong. And if there is some sort of a data quality issue, for example, food poisoning, you might not find out <laughs> immediately. Yes. You just know for sure that that customer will not be coming back to your restaurant without some major changes. Um, that is just different from the software world a little bit, where the idea of lineage is so specific to the data world. Uh, of course, there are infrastructure dependencies within you know, an application, but one particular piece of data tracing it all the way through to the end user is kind of a thing that's unique to the data world and a critical step to uh, finding and squashing data bugs. Interesting. And then sort of linking this back to where we started with your academic research around machine learning, uh, have you built machine learning into Metaplane or is there a machine learning component or how does that play? There are time series analysis components 
uh, and there definitely are machine learning aspects. We haven't, we've only started scratching the surface to understanding like how every customer can help other customers. Of course, not by sharing their data or even sharing their metadata, but the amazing thing about our world, the data world, is that the same models that help imperfect foods, right? Mm -hmm. E-commerce company that sends you boxes of ugly vegetables and fruits uh, can also apply to like a credit card company. Uh, there's very similar patterns that you see in their data, and that's where machine learning can come into play. Interesting. So yeah, uh, the, the anomaly, it's really about anomaly detection and what defines an anomaly is almost independent of what the actual underlying data is. The, it's separate but similar mm -hmm. for sure. Um, where on the most atomic level, an anomaly is an anomaly, it's just a time series. But if we want to become more sophisticated as an observability tool, we have to start recognizing the semantics of the data. Uh, going to our example before, like once you know that it's a latitude or a longitude, this refers to sales, you can start applying other sorts of models and rules on top of it that are more specific to the end user. Interesting. So uh, as we sort of wrap up a little bit, uh, so, you know, You've gone on this journey from uh, academia, PhD, uh, to, to a startup. Uh, anything you want to leave uh, listeners with as it relates to uh, your career journey and, and the future of, uh, you know, where do you see uh, data ops and, uh, and soft or, or data observability going in the future? I would say one that as we build tools, we should challenge ourselves to think, what does the data world look like in 2042, 20 years from now? Mm -hmm. What tools are there? What jobs are people working? Uh, and once you extend out the to that time horizon, things start getting a little bit interesting, right? SQL will probably be here. Uh, databases, probably the same databases we have now, not sure. Uh, but you have to kind of boil it down to the fundamentals of you have sources generating data. You have use cases that can use that data. Everything in between is a bit of a wild west. And what we have today with the modern data stack could be the optimal configuration for where we are along the curve of Moore's Law. But 20 years from now, that isn't necessarily the case. Uh, why, why we're so excited about observability is... We're comfortable saying that in 20 years, any company with data will have full visibility into where it came from, what the impact is, and how it has trended over time. So this idea of losing data trust is no longer even an issue. Yeah, and maybe to extend that, thinking a little bit, one thing I always say is that at its core, every business uh, is a data business. Right. And so if, if you believe that at a sort of fundamental level, that you know, you're not really a retailer, you're not really a hospital, you're not really a, a retail company. At its core, what you are is a data pipeline. Without observability, <laughs> you, you're really not managing that core asset of who you are as a business, which is your data. That is so, you're right. Um, 
where and we had to treat it with as much respect uh, as we have begun treating software. Right. We, you know, software is a revered field in our world now, but that hasn't always been the case. Mm. Right. It used to be part of the IT function, like a, a cost center. A side business. A side, exactly. And I think we're just starting to see, you know, data emerge from the primordial ooze mm. in a lot of companies uh, to become you know, a major, you know, competitive advantage. And one last thought I would leave to you, your listeners, uh, who I imagine are many data practitioners is if you have the itch to start a company, I would so encourage you to do it. Um, you know, of course, for me, I've been super fortunate to have the resources along the way to support me on that journey. But at the end of the day, what improves the state of technology today are practitioners building what they wish they had at their current roles. And I have full confidence that if you take the leap right now, the market is very friendly towards founders uh, and it's like such a good time. The learning velocity is incredible. Uh, so I'd encourage you to take the leap and if you know need any help, just send me an email too. Excellent. No, I think that's, uh, that's actually a brilliant way uh, to end because I think, you know, you are the archetype of that, someone who you know, starts their career in academia, working with data, frustrated by the ability to work with and manage that data, get insight out of it. And you solve that problem by starting a company to fix the problem, which is perfect. And I, I agree with you. Every one of our listeners should do the same thing. So uh, with that, Kevin, thanks for making the time and joining me in person for our first live and in-person data master podcast. Such a pleasure to be here.